Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters, welcome back to the third episode in a three-part series on coastal adaptation and conservation in Massachusetts. I've been working with the Trustees of Reservations on this series. The Trustees is a conservation organization based in Massachusetts. Remember, in our first episode, we focused on Wayskwee Beach, which is on Martha's Vineyard. The next episode took us back to the mainland where we talked with stakeholders from Crane Beach, just north of Boston and outside Ipswich. My goal was to travel to Massachusetts to record these episodes in person, but the pandemic had other plans. Fortunately, with the help of the trustees, we were able to record these conversations remotely with experts and stakeholders from around the Crane Beach area, and we learned about their adaptation efforts underway. This podcast series was funded by the trustees, which is doing this as part of their communication efforts from a Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management grant they received. So thanks to the trustees and thanks to CZM for funding the series. As you have followed along with the two previous episodes, we're going behind the scenes on how they are adapting their properties to climate change. We wanted to take you on the ground in coastal Massachusetts and hear how people want their coastal zone managed and what steps they're willing to take to protect and adapt these areas to existing and future impacts of climate change. This was an exciting opportunity to talk with people from coastal Massachusetts and how this region is approaching climate change. Yes, it would have been great to see Martha's Vineyard in person for the first time, but as you hear the voices and accents of my guests, you're going to think you're there eating clam chowder, watching the waves crash, and feeling the sand between your toes. Or at least I encourage you to try to imagine that. I consider myself very lucky to get a chance to talk to these folks and share their stories here on the podcast. First off, we're going to hear from Tom O'Shea again, the Director of Coastal and Natural Resources at the Trustees. He's going to give us some background on the grant they received and what's going on at our final destination, Norton Point Beach in Martha's Vineyard. Then stakeholders from that area will join me to share their own experiences on what's happening to the beach. All right, let's take a journey back to Martha's Vineyard. Hey, Adapters, I'm here with Tom O'Shea. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to the podcast for this final installment of our three-part series. Hey, Doug. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. So we've been on a big journey here. This is a long journey through coastal Massachusetts, and it's been a fun journey for me. But again, let's give some context for our new listeners to this episode. Can you share who the trustees are? Sure. The trustees of reservations. We're a land trust in Massachusetts, the oldest land trust in the United States. We are based in Massachusetts and we own about 119 properties across the state and we have 30 plus properties on the coast. We have a mission that is dedicated to preserving and caring for places of exceptional ecological significance, cultural significance, and scenic significance. So it's really looking at all the different resources that are exceptional, and we try to protect and care for those into the future. And so what is your specific role with the trustees? My role, Doug, is Director of Coast and Natural Resources, and I oversee our coastal program, our coastal team, and then helping to lead our coastal strategy, which is a new strategy for the trustees. This is the final episode, and I'm going to give her a shout out in another place, too. But I've worked very closely with Christine Boynton of the trustees. Could you just give a little bit of background on Christine? She's been incredibly helpful. This episode, I mean, all these episodes only happen because of her help. So who's Christine? Yeah, we couldn't do it without Christine. Christine is our coastal communications manager who's been developing and mobilizing our coastal strategy communication plan. And she's been co-project lead on this CCM grant with me and super talented. Really great to have Christine as our project partner. 
Yes, absolutely instrumental in recruiting. It's not easy getting all these guys, especially remotely. So thank you, Chris team. So the trustees coastal vision, why is it important for a land conservation organization? Our vision is really thinking about the future of our coast. We have often thought about, you know, when we protect places that once they're protected, we just care for them and we know how to do that well. But in this case, the coast is really looking at accelerating change. And that's primarily from sea level rise and storm surge for many, many of our properties. Our vision is really about what role can the trustees play more broadly across the Massachusetts coast using our properties as examples of how we're responding to coastal change. And in many ways, this CZM grant that's supporting our work in this podcast is a way to share that model and what we're doing that can be transferable to other coastal landowners and communities across the coast. And that's what we see as part of our vision is that we have a, you know, we are making, you know, more resiliency across our coast. We're providing for better options for the future and for next generation to have a coast that they can enjoy that is protected, especially at places that are at risk of flooding and erosion and storm impact. So this is a time, it's a pivotal moment in time. You know, we see that in the next 30 years, we can make some changes and respond. But after 30 years, I mean, these changes become much more dramatic. So our vision really sees the time is now to make a difference in our coast. So this is the third beach that we're going to be talking about, Norton Point Beach. But I want to talk about, and you'd got into that, what is coastal resilience? And I just wonder if you can reflect a little bit. We've visited three different beaches here, and a couple of them are very similar. But in some ways, we we heard very different stories on how people look at managing them and how they're important. And so that what is this notion of coastal resilience for you? It's, it's, it's almost hard to create that kind of consistent thinking on what resilience really is if you look at these different systems. It, it really is. And everybody has a bit of a difference in terms of what they think is resilient. And the way I'm thinking of resilience in this case and for our properties and how we're starting to define it ourselves as an organization and talk about it is that these we do interventions and we are helping these places adapt to these changes that are happening, sea level rise and storm surge, for instance. And by doing that, they function and they continue to support the values and recreation and habitat and scenic views and public access that we want. And they're not going to go away. However, I mean, having said all that, there's a time perspective to all this. And that is that you have to think about, well, how long will they bounce back? How long will these beaches be able to, you know, shift and migrate, move around and still be a beach and still provide all these great values And that is limited in some respects by time and they do change. And so, you know, this is a kind of a rolling idea of resiliency that for some period of time, these places can adapt, function, and maybe they change to the point where they're they're different or or we have to accept loss in some cases. So we're also defining resilience, not only in the ability of these places to still provide values and function, but also under what time frame. And that's something that we're just putting into the conversation now, which is to say that, you know, we may have to start managing people's expectations for what's possible. How much can these places adapt? How much can we intervene to make a difference? And that really is ultimately what some of the perspectives I'm sure you're hearing, Doug, from other people. And you're getting that sense of what those expectations are around resilience. 
the other aspect of this, and I'll just say, is that, you know, we see that there's a natural flow of things. And to some extent, you, you have to go with a sort of natural system and let it do what, it, what it's going to do. So we're not fighting against nature, but intervening and working with natural processes where we can to provide those kind of short term possibilities and values and functions for the beaches and salt marshes and coastal banks. And that's a long winded you know, description of resiliency. But it's one that I think is worth kind of talking about a little bit more because it has a lot of permutations to what that means to different people. So we're having this podcast because you've received a Coastal Zone Management Grant. Can you uh, give a little bit of background on what that's all about? Yeah, this is a Coastal Zone Management Grant from CZM. And Coastal Zone Management provided this Coastal Resilience Grant for the first time to eligible nonprofits to support communications and different types of communication approaches about coastal change and climate and storm impacts to our coastal areas. We thought it was a great opportunity for the trustees. We you know, have half a million people that visit our coastal properties each year, and we really touch a lot of people, whether it's through public programming and visitation and our membership. So this is an excellent opportunity for us to use different communication methods, including podcasts with you, Doug, which I think is a really great way for people to think about and experience and listen to perspectives more deeply in times when they have flexibility in their schedule to listen to a podcast, they can be in the car, they can be you know, in a comfortable place in their house or wherever. So we're hoping that this is going to be really a rich experience for people to think about the coast in, in a different way, in a deeper way. So we're talking about Norton Point Beach, and this is a living laboratory to study the vulnerabilities of barrier beaches and to investigate various adaptation methods. And so in all these episodes, this is the third, there's a little bit of a different focus on what you're looking at. So why is this type of shoreline of focus and what does it face in the coming years? And, and I guess more generally, because we're going to hear from people about this, but what can be done to protect it? Sure. Barrier beaches. They, I mean, there's a reason they call them barriers and they're long, narrow strips of sand that are, are essentially beaches that have formed geologically often from river and glacial deposits. And these barrier beach systems are often a barrier to habitat and homes and residences and other landscapes behind them. Often it's a bay or a salt marsh, but also upland. And so in this case, Norton Point fits that definition quite well. And we have 26 miles of beaches across our properties Many of them are large barrier beach systems, and those systems are on the front lines of, of the high energy impacts from storms and, of course, sea level rise, which is just you know starting to slowly take away shoreline as it submerges it. And then you put the storms on top of that and the wave energy, they start to erode, break up the dunes, wash overwash the sand, kind of move them landward. So that type of change is now starting to cause a net loss of beaches in beach areas. You know, for instance, we look at Norton Point. I believe that it was something like, you know, since the 1890s, we've lost well over 100 acres of Norton Point, and much of it has moved landward. So for us now, with, you know, thousands of people that visit the beach, it's really in critical habitat for endangered shorebirds. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. People love it there. It's really on the edge of, of the state when you think of it, just even geographically where it is. It's these, these places are really gorgeous places. In fact, most people that go to these big beaches, they're probably on a barrier beach 
um, in many cases, not always, but they're on the front line. So we need to think about how we intervene. Now, some places have intervened in a much more dramatic way where they've rebuilt major dune systems, again, bringing in material from upland areas off off the beach and really fortifying these large dunes. It's very expensive. Any of the dune reconstruction, beach nourishment work, you have to bring sand in. And, and in some cases, it helps to, you know, recharge the system with some more sand if it's been eroded away. Barrier beach systems can naturally shift and migrate, and they do this naturally. But we have to start thinking about, okay, for places like Norton Point that are seeing some of the highest rates of shoreline loss in the state, what can we do? What should we do to still provide those values of public access? And that right now has already come to the forefront where, you know, getting access into Norton Point has become potentially at risk, particularly for overseeing vehicles that need a certain amount of ability to access safely and, you know, not in the water, not creating uh, more disturbance to habitat. And so what we've seen at Norton Point is we've lost some of the primary dune areas from overwash and storm impacts. We're trying to think about, all right, what are some different types of interventions and trials we can do that with different designs and different treatments that will help us learn what works, what doesn't work, how do people react to this, how does the habitat respond, how, how is it helping public access, is the beach more resilient, shall we say, and able to have some buffering to storms and still provide some elevation above sea level, just creeping up on these beaches. So, Doug, there's there's a lot of questions right now, and this is, you know, this podcast and this whole grant and other videos and workshops we've done have really focused on this question. And what we learned from this uh, perspective today in our sort of starting our charting our course for Norton Point Beach, you know, this is going to be a story that's going to repeat itself across the East Coast and Barrier Beach areas. So we hope that we will provide some, you know, perspective and learnings and help us think about the future and, and how we're going to create more resilient barrier beach systems that provide enough opportunities for us today, but in the, the, for the next generation. And that's kind of how I see it is that in many ways, we're doing interventions now to provide options for the next generation and give them a chance to experience some of the values we've enjoyed. And hopefully at that point, when they're ready to pick up the challenge, you know, they have they have something to work with. So the trustees organized a workshop around Norton Point Beach, and you did this for the other beaches that we've talked about in these previous episodes. And so could you just, I guess, again, mention and just briefly what the purpose of the workshop was and who was invited? Who did you recruit to come to it? Yeah, good question. The purpose of the workshops, the state, we call them stakeholder workshops, was to really get a diverse group of stakeholders that were primarily from the local area that had a real attachment and experience with the beach and get their perspective on, first of all, are they aware that there are climate impacts and there are going to be long-term changes to the beach? Do they have a feeling as if whether we should respond and how should we respond? And we were able to get some new perspectives on that and start to understand what the public's appetite is and what our publics and our stakeholders, you know, visitors, community residents, I think in some cases we had people that were, you know, uh, fishing, some were youth, and we had a whole range of different stakeholders. Some were scientists and historians. Some were experts in this field. In fact, uh, some were residents 
and lived behind the barrier beach and were concerned about losing the barrier beach for storm protection. So everybody's got kind of a different set of values and perspectives. And we did hear as a result, a range of responses on how much we should intervene. So this is giving us some really interesting perspective in terms of, okay, well, how much should we invest and what is the appetite for that? And how does that fit with our mission? And how can we still provide the things that people want with this risk of losing our beach? So I think for us, it's a helpful experience. And I think now people are a little more engaged in terms of this issue and our work in this area. And now they start to see kind of looking under the hood saying, oh, okay, this is what's really involved. Okay. And so we hope that that will build more support for whatever we do, that people feel like they're coming along with us on the journey. A nice segue is that my listeners now get to hear from those people who participate in the workshop and who use this resource, Norton Point Beach. And so, Tom, I'm going to have you come back again at the end of the episode, and we're going to talk about what's what the next steps are. But I'll, I'll see you on the other side, Tom. Great. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Doug. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Dr. Rick Murray. Hi, Rick. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Doug. Thank you for having me. Well, just first off, could you just tell me where you're at and what you do? Sure. I have the privilege and the pleasure of working at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution located on Cape Cod in in Massachusetts. And there I'm the deputy director and the vice president for research. So internationally renowned research center there, and sure it's probably fun to be working there. Yeah, it's a really great place. I, I started here uh, just within the past year. Before that, I was at Boston University for you know nearly 30 years as a professor. So uh, it's a nice evolution in my career, but also you know at a place like Woods Hole, I'm really able to work on, on a lot of interesting problems with a lot of fascinating people. You are a landowner on Martha's Vineyard, but you actually live there and ferry over to Woods Hole? The first part, yes. My family has been going to Martha's Vineyard and in particular Chappaquiddick Island from about 15 years from before I was born and all the way up to uh, the present where my family, we still own property on Chappaquiddick, but year round, my real home is up in Situate, Massachusetts, another coastal community. You were able to participate in that trustees workshop. What did you think? What did you think that they were trying to accomplish? And then some of the, I guess, recommendations that came from adaptation that they're proposing. What, what were your thoughts? I thought the trustees, number one, were doing a great thing by, you know, seeking comment from interested stakeholders. And I thought that the way they framed the conversation was, was a very good and supportive of the fact that, you know, they presented a variety of options that we all face. You know, regardless of where we live, which is we can do nothing about climate change and let it happen, or we can try to mitigate some of the impacts or and, you know, what some of those uh, mitigation steps would be. So I, I thought it was a very productive conversation, and I really liked that they had a number of different people from different backgrounds and professions, yet everybody, of course, you know, passionate and devoted to the subject matter. Many of the recommendations potentially could be very costly. And one of the things that you brought up was talking about lower level managed retreat when you're thinking about paths and trails. Could you elaborate on, on what you meant by that? Sure. Sea level rise is going to happen. There's nothing that we can do to stop it at this point, even if we start decreasing global warming over time and so on and so forth. Sea level is going to be rising. So to a certain extent, we need to adapt to that. 
And I have both, you know, scientifically as well as personally shied away from hard engineering solutions, building big walls, building big gates, or trying to have man triumph over nature, as it were. And I'm far more supportive because I think it's been shown to be more realistic and more successful of, as you said, managed retreat, which is over time, people recognize that sea level is rising and coastal erosion will be occurring. And so let's, instead of building a seawall to preserve that path, let's move the path back 100. Let's, instead of trying to build a big concrete wall around a lighthouse, which is another common you know, impact, let's pick the lighthouse up and move it back by several hundred feet. They've done that at Gay Head. They've done that up at Cape Pogue, uh, different parts of Martha's Vineyard. So I think the realistic approach is to undergo managed retreat over a medium long period of time. So it's not like next Thursday, everybody's going to pack up their bags and run away. But it does mean that over time, we need to acknowledge the reality and move backwards and move upwards. That, that is a great point. And I think a lot of coastal communities all over the country are having to think about this, that like you said, just next week, you're not going to have to pack up your bags, but maybe we do some low-cost adaptation actions. But in the big picture, sea level rise is happening, and you have to look at 2050, 2070, and it's just natural for us to kind of plan out two to five years. But at some point, you sort of need to plan for that long term. And just even with your background, I'm sure you can appreciate that. When do those tough decisions need to be made? It's an interesting question because sometimes these properties which have been inherited for, you know, over generations is often somebody's, you know, largest, most valuable item. And so, you know, you can't force people to leave. You can't force people to lose the equity that they have in there. But, you know, if the state government, local government, federal government had uh, advantageous programs, so instead of continually rebuilding homes on the federal dime for you know, FEMA flood insurance type things. What if the federal government were instead able to help financially incentivize people and communities to move homes or to otherwise adapt? So it's a complicated social, economic, cultural problem. We need to change inheritance laws. We need to change zoning laws. We need to look at, you know, financial incentives, as I just said, to help people realize that this is in their best interests. And it's also what's best for the land. And in fact, again, if we don't do this, sea level is still going to rise. So it's really truly in, in everybody's interest to manage it, to cope and adapt to the eventualities. I think one of the quotes from you at the workshop was just throwing good money after good money at this problem. And at some point, you have to decide you're not going to do that. But as just we were discussing, you know, it's perfectly rational for a community to plan out two, five, ten years. And in some ways, you're just throwing that money because you're not planning out 50 years. That's exactly right. And I live here in Situate, as I said, and I was a selectman here for eight years. And as a selectman, uh, you know, you get involved in a lot of conversations about infrastructure. And, for example, our water treatment plant, like many others in coastal communities, is at a very low elevation. And water treatment plants have lifespans of 40 or 50 years as they get continually updated. And they're unusually they don't usually they don't move anywhere. 
But, you know, you have to consider some of these low-lying communities like ours with our water treatment plants or other infrastructure that we're building for 50 years. Well, if you look at the scientific predictions for sea level rise, 50 years from now is a pretty different ballgame. So we're used to planning in some ways for 50-year lifespans, but not in others. And so we need to add to our, our menu or our, our list of things to add to the 50-year timescale is the location of that parking lot near the beach. Or what are we going to do with these trails? Or are we going to allow rebuilding of these homes that have just gotten you know, plastered in the latest Northeaster? Are we going to have them rebuild so they can get plastered in the next Northeaster or one 10 years from now? As a resident of Martha's Vineyard, it's, you spend a lot of t- I mean, you spend a lot of time there. Do you have conversations with people that live there? And does the issue of sea level rise and sort of long term planning come up frequently? Are they talking about climate change and sea level rise? Yes, and I've noticed a marked change in the conversation over the past five years because people absolutely see with their own eyes. And they see the effects of climate change in a number of different ways. As an avid hockey player myself, and I was born in 1963, so I'm 56, I remember skating on ponds starting in November on and skating on ponds on Thanksgiving. And my kids, not so much. They skate maybe once or twice a year, if that. That's in my own lifespan. I've seen that. We've seen the effect of sea level rise on many of the roads that the trustees maintains on East Beach, certainly down at Norton Point. There's you know, erosion going on, and we've been around long enough, and the changes are getting dramatic enough that we can see it with our own eyes. People aren't reading it in scientific papers. They're not just watching it on TV happening elsewhere. It is exactly where they live. It is where they work. It is where they play and they see it, and it is undeniable. So the conversations have become much more real and much more accommodating and collaborative as opposed to a a bimodal, is it happening, yes or no. Do you have a favorite spot on the beach? Oh, down there. I just love being up on those bluffs overlooking the Norton Beach with you know where the breakthrough occurs on occasion. It's just one of the prettiest places. Um, my family, we live up on Cape Pogue, the very north end, northeast corner of Chappaquiddick. So East Beach, um, which connects basically Norton Point all the way up to the northeast corner. I think that's one of the prettiest places on this whole planet. And I'm biased, but I've been all over the world on ships and on beaches of incredible remoteness. But I always keep thinking of East Beach on Chappaquiddick. Great. Well, thanks for your time. Absolutely. That would be great. And by the way, thank you for all you're doing. It's really important that we have media involvement and having professional media like yourself is really, really essential. All right. Well, thank you very much. Take care. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Elizabeth Durkee. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. How are you? Okay, Liz, I'm excited to have you on. But first off, let's give a little bit of background. What's your relationship to this area, North Point Beach? And you work in the area, right? Well, I work for the town of Oak Bluffs, which is one of the six towns on Martha's Vineyard. It's not the town where Norton Point is, but it's not a big island. What do you do with the city there? I'm the conservation agent for the town of Oak Bluffs. And how long have you lived and worked in the region? Oh, boy. I came here as a child for summer vacations, and I've lived here for most of my adult life. And I've worked for the town for 26 years. 
Okay. So you've seen any of the changes that have occurred that we've been talking about. You've been there for a while. So how does uh, the organization you work for address climate change? You know, small towns don't really have, we don't have climate change departments or staff really. There's really no one in particular who handles these issues. As the conservation agent, I just sort of became intrigued living on an island with the issue of sea level rise. And that got me interested in doing my own research on climate change in general and how it would affect the island. And so I just tried to learn as much as I could and and try to do some planning for the town. So I did a little research on some of the work that you've done there. And you actually wrote a piece, I'm not sure if it was a local newspaper or something, but it was climate change, 50 ways we're taking action now. Do you remember that piece? Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, we can't go through all 50 here, but what were you trying to say in that? I was asked by the newspaper to to do that. Suddenly in 2019, there seemed to be a burst of activity around the climate change issue on the island. A lot of organizations were starting to get involved. And so it just seemed like things were getting busy here in terms of climate action. So that's how that piece came about, just because, you know, there seemed like there needed to be a place to sort of let people know what's going on. Well, it was a really comprehensive piece. I mean, you you touch upon issues related to adaptation, but I think there was clean energy, but I just think there was other, even longstanding environmental issues, right? You kind of covered it all. Well, (laughs) I've been working on climate change for a long time and I've given some talk about it. So I'm kind of tuned into everything that's going on. In fact, I just got hired to be the Martha's Vineyard Commission's climate change planner, which we'll start doing next month. Oh, well, congratulations. That's great that they've prioritized that position. So that must be sort of an exciting development for you since you've been doing it for a while. Yes, yes. I'm really, really glad that someone's finally going to have a job like that on the island where one person can really focus on it for 40 hours a week or probably more. (laughs) When the piece went out there, and I, I know you're doing a lot of other things, but did you get any feedback? How did the public interpret that? Did they have questions or were there any recommendations from other people say, hey, you should add this to the list? How How was the piece received? I think, you know, there's more than than just those 50 things going on. And there are other people who are involved, you know, less directly in climate change issues as well. You know, I think it was received in a positive light because I don't think a lot of people really even realized that all those things were going on. You participated in the Trustees of Reservations Adaptation Workshop. What did you think of the workshop itself? I thought it was very well done. I think that they looked at a lot of very important options, alternatives to what they can do in terms of adaptation out at Waysque and Norton Point. One of my initial reactions was, boy, they're lucky that they're not in Oak Bluffs because a lot of our coast is armored in our downtown area. And that just brings out a lot more problems when it comes to climate adaptation. But when you have a natural system, you know, there's pretty clear cut alternatives for what you can do. And, you know, they're all good natural options. You made a point during the workshop that there are these short-term solutions, and in this case, it would be armoring or seawalls, but you also have to factor in long-term solutions to the ecological functions that are going along on the island. Right. I don't think armoring is ever a good answer for for any kind of climate adaptation, unless you already have an armored shore, and then you know it it may well be better to reinforce the armoring you have than to tend to just let it go. But but out at Norton Point and Waysquee, they've just got a natural environment. And so they've got options that are more natural that they can use instead of hard structures out there, which I don't think anyone wants anywhere on the island. 
Well, I guess your experience, what you were just talking about too, is probably hopefully useful information to them saying, listen, you've had some options, you have a bit of time, but this the short term and armory as an example is not the way to go. I mean, and you know, they need to hear that. Yeah, I think that was one of the alternatives that was mentioned. I don't think anyone took it too seriously, but <laughs> in your position and you you think about Norton Point, how how are you guys talking about sea level rise? It's obviously this sort of longer term impact, you know, extreme storm events are something that people have to deal with more in the short term. But what are you thinking of when sea level rise comes up? Well, the first thing I think is that most people tend to not do long-term planning. Most people are thinking more about the immediate future, and I'm including towns, governments, and possibly even conservation agents in that respect. It's hard to plan long-term, but this is climate change is an issue where we have to plan long-term. You know, the sea level rise estimates you know, they keep changing. They change, you know, all the time. And so we don't really know exactly what we're looking at in the future and exactly what to aim for. But we have to just sort of pick a number, you know, based on the data and plan for a particular number or else you'll just drive yourself crazy or just, you know, not plan at all (laughs) because it's too confusing. Well, I'm sure this new position on the commission, you're going to obviously be bringing up some of these impacts and, you know, talking about the different adaptation options. What are, I guess, the biggest impacts that concern you in regards, I guess, to your area and the the island itself? Well, the vineyard is a summer resort island. So the biggest issue at least in terms of the public, is our beaches, is preserving our beaches. And, you know, beaches that are in front of armored structures erode much more quickly than natural beaches. So that's an issue in the town that I live in, is that we have to re-nourish our beaches to keep them available for recreation and for the economic values they bring into the town. At Wayskwe and Norton Point, they don't have that problem, but with sea level rise and, and more frequent and potentially stronger storms, there's going to be more erosion and and that's what, you know, they're looking at in terms of planning for the future at Norton Point. You know, it's it, it's recreation is so important to this island. And when you're looking at natural conditions and the natural environment, you have to weigh it against the recreational values that they provide to the community. And that also includes the economic values it brings to the island. You know, my job as a conservation agent is to protect the natural resources. But even still, you know, it's a balance. It's a balancing act because, you know, our shoreline is our recreational centerpiece and the base of our economy. So you really can't look at it completely in, in one, from one position or another. So you recently got a Coastal Zone Management grant that's going to help with some mapping. Could you elaborate on that? Well, the Martha's Vineyard Commission, our regional planning agency, and the Town of Oak Bluffs jointly filed for a CZM resiliency grant to do what's called a Storm Tide Pathways Project, which is mapping the specific areas where the floodwater is actually going to go as the sea rises, as opposed to, say, the FEMA flood maps, which are much more vague. So we're going to know specifically where the flood water is going to go as the water rises. And there's also going to be a link to the National Weather Service, a real-time link, so that emergency managers, police, EMTs, and firemen can look at the National Weather Service map and see where the flooding is so they can figure out how to get to places they need to go in an emergency. So it's really exciting. It's really like state-of-the-art climate planning as far as I can see. So that's really on the ground, local, I guess, adaptation planning, you know, it's really useful. And I guess a lot of communities would benefit from that. Right. It's for the whole island too. And the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown, Massachusetts are the ones who've been doing this. So they've got experience and we're very happy to have that. 
you mentioned a little bit of this, but you've lived on the island a long time. Do you just talk about climate change much with neighbors or when you're on the job and such? And you'd mentioned in 2019, it's becoming even a bigger issue. But what's your sense of the people on the island? And are they pretty supportive of taking action? <laughs> sometimes I think yes, and sometimes I think no. We did an adaptation plan for our town and something like 40 people showed up, which is a lot of people showed up for a public presentation of that. On the other hand, I sometimes find that the public is not as educated on the climate issues as, well, as I would hope they would be. But, you know, but I understand because people have things that they do in their everyday lives and they don't think about it every day like some of us do. So I think there needs to be some public education about climate issues here on the island. I, however, talk about it all the time. I said to my husband once, name any topic and I'll relate it to climate change. <laughs> he just rolled his eyes. <laughs> Perfect. We need a, a lot more of you out there in these small communities. That's great. This is a question I'm asking everyone, so I'll, I'll be curious how you kind of answer it. But do you have a favorite spot at North Point? Well, when I was kids, we used to go out there at night and set bonfires and enjoy the beach that way. But I don't think that's allowed anymore. So I wouldn't encourage anyone to do that today. But I have fond memories of going out there with friends as a kid and enjoying the beach friends that had trucks and we could all jump in the back and go out there and spend an afternoon at the beach. It's a beautiful beach. And it's, you know, it seems wilder than the Oak Bluffs beaches because it's on the South shore and it's ocean facing and it's, it's just an exquisite place to be. Okay, Liz, I'm very encouraged that someone like you is working on this issue. You've gotten very passionate around climate change. And I think Martha's Vineyard and the area that you work in is in good hands. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for all you do, too. I think these podcasts are great, and, and it's really important to get the public involved and educated. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Bob Mason. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for including me. Bob, so what's your relationship with the trustees? I'm part of the board of directors, and I volunteer through a great number of their different community committees, including stewardship, marketing, our tech task force, and very involved with coastal issues uh, through Martha's Vineyard. Do you live in Boston or do you actually live on Martha's Vineyard? No, I live just outside uh, Boston in the suburbs. Okay, so how often do you get to go out to the island? We have a house down there, so during the summer quite often, but we actually enjoy being down on the island all year round. It, it's a beautiful place. And did you grow up there? Have you been in the area your entire life? I did grow up in the Massachusetts area. Technically, I was born in Los Angeles, but okay. uh, we like to not really speak of that too much. As a young boy, we moved here to Massachusetts, uh, grew up here, uh, went to college at Worcester Polytech. My entire professional career has been in the Boston and, and Cambridge area. Okay, so let's talk about Norton Point Beach. And mm -hmm. what is your interest there? Is that near where your property's at? Do you just spend a lot of time there? So Norton Point is a beautiful co part of the southern coast of Martha's Vineyard. It actually connects through a, a barrier beach system to the uh, island of Chappaquiddick. Uh, Chappaquiddick is you know just off the coast of Egertown and the sort of the main part of Martha's Vineyard. And occasionally through history, a big storm will kind of punch a hole through the barrier beach that connects Norton Point to what's called Wasquee on Chappaquiddick, and Chappaquiddick becomes an island. And then over time, the sands fill back in, the barrier beach um, reforms and gets connected to Norton Point again. So Norton Point is a beautiful 
places to walk. A lot of people like the rollers and the waves in the summer. And it also hosts a very you know broad set of shorebirds, which are always kind of fun and interesting this time of year as they're nesting and converging on the island during the summer times. So the current status of the beach, though, it's sealed at the moment, though, right? That is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a there was a moment, I forget, probably six or seven years ago now, I, would, I forget the exact date, where uh, it had opened up through a storm, was open for a number of years, and and that really changes the currents and the, and the shape of kind of how the tides are done. And both at Norton Point and the the Waysquee Beach, which is on the other end of the Barrier Beach, uh, had tremendous amount of erosion. So the, the Martha's Vineyard as a landscape is very dynamic, and, and you just really have to be cognizant of that. And I think sometimes people are complacent and, and think the earth just sort of is an ad infinitum and just is as as it always was. But in fact, it changes all the time. Do you have a preference, and just parking aside the ecological considerations, do you have a preference when the beach is breached or when it's sealed? I think it's easier when it's sealed. <laughs> uh, the currents and the um, the flow of water is a lot more manageable. It's my understanding, though I'm not an expert in this place, that it's actually beneficial to have a, a, a break every so often because it kind of cleans out the bay. For those not familiar with Martha's Vineyard, there's a very large bay that go, kind of go, is north of Norton Point um, as a barrier beach. On the south side is the open Atlantic Ocean. On the north side of Norton Point is what's called Katama Bay. And so occasionally when it does get breached and stays open for a few years, you know, the tides and the currents can really clean out the bay. And I think I believe that's really healthy for the ecosystem overall. I'm just curious, so it, it, the local residents of the island, is there consensus feeling like, well, it's, it's a good thing that it breached for the time being, or generally is it just better for tourism and everything that when, when it's sealed, which is sort of like overall with the island's perspective, they must know these things. It must be just get around. Well, I mean, so the interesting thing is until recently, you know, like I said, in the last decade or so, um, when we had this most recent breach, I don't believe they had had a breach for, I don't know, maybe like 50 years or something like that. So I, I think actually people were surprised and shocked that something so dramatic could happen. But if you actually go through the historical records, um, it is this phenomenon that does occur. And uh, another fellow trustees board member, David Foster, wrote a book about kind of the ecology and landscape and geological history of Martha's Vineyard. And, and he found evidence that, in fact, for long stretches of time, the two lands were not connected. And so that used to be the norm. Uh, it's only in recent memory that people sort of forgot um, that these breaches do occur. And I think overall, people felt it to be a little bit of annoying. Across the barrier beach, there is the opportunity to try and drive your vehicle uh, through an, with an oversand permit. And for some people, that's the only way to get on and off the island. And so it proves a little bit logistically challenging if you're a fisherman or an outdoorsman and you're trying to get out to this place if the two lands are not connected. The trustees recently hosted a workshop focusing on climate change, on adaptation. You were able to participate in that. What did you think of what they were talking about and adaptation actions that were discussed there? What, what was your thoughts about the workshop? 
Well, it was really informative for me in particular. I'm kind of a very visual learner. Um, and so you can kind of read and process uh, like around different adaptation techniques. But the trustees did a really good job in sort of presenting sort of visual representations of different types of techniques, maybe employed at different locations or kind of mock-ups of these different strategies of planting more dune grasses or allowing erosion to occur or retreating back and figuring out where new parking lots would go. So the concreteness of these different plans um, was really eye-opening and I think helped spark a lot of useful conversations amongst us who were able to attend. What were your major concerns as you watched these presentations regarding some maybe the future actions? What concerned you about maybe these aren't the right actions or they're not doing enough? Well, I think that once again, the particular challenge of Martha's Vineyard is the landscape is so dynamic and, you know, the rate of erosion is so high that my, my broad concern is that, you know, trying to be aggressive and feeling like you can dominate the landscape by actually changing it in a material way isn't really going to last. And, you know, Mother Nature's kind of kind of rule at the end. And so there, I think there's, you know, there's a functional return on investment question of like, okay, you could put a lot of time and energy in doing something, but the next organ comes around and all gets wiped out. Was it even worth the while? I also think the, in particular in the vineyard, how the landscape changes is, is very different at, at various points along the island. So. I mentioned this this point called Waysque that's out on Chappaquiddick. I believe it's like one of the most dynamic, you know, beach and, and cliff places across the entire eastern seaboard. Like, you know, it can literally change day by day, storm by storm. Um, but further down the beach, you know, things are much more stable at um, Norton Point or Long Point or a number of other uh, trustees' properties. And so I think you you can't be really uniform in a prescription. And in some places, there's not much you can do. And maybe in other areas, you know, really investing in restoration and ecological ways to adapt um, will be really effective. Is there a sense among the residents of the island about the cost associated with this? That if you're, you know, you're really planning for big storm events, is, is different opinions on that? I'm definitely not in the, in the position to speak for the whole island, you know, and I think this conversation around cost and climate adaptation is just starting. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's an impactful on a number of beach properties and, and how that affects, you know, sort of recreation and then the sort of the, the related, you know, socioeconomic challenges, you know, being a you know, a summer community and, and summer residents and vacationers coming down the island. But there are also more profound questions around basic infrastructure. And Martha's Vineyard as an island overall are trying to deal with climate change and, and sea level rise, not only in these like beautiful natural spots, but also like in the actual towns. You know, if a big storm comes, oftentimes parts of a town will get flooded. There was one study that I that I saw that showed that the hospital could literally become an island. And so how do you adapt to that? You know, do you need to think about raising land for roads, build new bridges? So there's a whole host of issues that the island has to deal with overall. And those conversations are just getting started right now. And 
I don't think anyone really understands the full impact or cost that will be coming down the line. Yeah, and I guess following up on that, you have people that are trying to respond to, let's say, an extreme storm event that breaches the beach, but then longer term, two, three, five, seven feet of sea level rise. Those are sometimes two, well, they are two very different conversations. And it sounds like people are starting to have those, even though the, the sea level rise one must be harder to get your head around. Yes, but I think Martha's Vineyard um, has been very progressive in trying to understand the impact because being an island, sea level rise and climate change does have a real material impact in, in people's lives now. And so there has been a lot of collaboration with both um, scientific and, and uh, conservation groups, including the trustees, to really kind of do scientific modeling around impacts on different locations around the island. And and that is spurring conversations around, you know, what the islanders might need to do to make sure that it still remains a, a really viable community. And how do you see yourself staying involved with what the trustees are doing? Well, I'm definitely a big supporter. I'm a bit of a science and geek nerd, so I like the kind of the science part of, of understanding climate change and sea level rise and trying to use sort of facts and predictive models to help inform policy decisions. And hopefully I can play a role in translating and, and educating that amongst my own you know, friends and, and community and people that I know. Do you have a favorite spot at Norton Beach? Well, my uh, favorite spot is actually on Waysquee, okay. uh, as I mentioned. Uh, so you, Waysquee is this wild windswept, very dynamic uh, location. There's a, a cliff edge and big open tracts of land and wind-twisted pine trees and the surf that kind of comes on. And just being out there, you're kind of reminded of both kind of the beauty and the power of nature. Okay, Bob, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a fun conversation and uh, look forward to hearing more perspectives. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Dr. David Foster. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here with you. All right. We're going to be talking about Martha's Vineyard here. But first off, just how long have you been in the area? What's your background for this space? I grew up in New England and been in Massachusetts for 40 years, been working on Martha's Vineyard for 25 or 30 years, and I'm sitting on Martha's Vineyard right now. Okay. You're actually on the island. All right. I am. What's your role with the trustees? I have a long relationship with the trustees, initially by doing collaborative research with the group of the scientists on staff, then becoming a board member and finishing that up. And I continue to work on a number of their committees, both here on Martha's Vineyard, more broadly across Massachusetts, dealing with agriculture and other issues. So you've actually written a book about Martha's Vineyard and a lot of these issues that were talked about at this workshop. But, but could you give a little bit more background on the book you wrote? Yeah, so I'm an ecologist. And the approach that I take to understanding nature is to investigate its history, which always involves investigating the history of human activity. And so the volume that I wrote about the vineyard does exactly that. It tries to understand the ecological characteristics of the island by exploring the island's history, both natural history and human history, 
and then applying that to thinking about conservation policy and conservation stewardship. So we think about the environmental movement actually not being that old, going back to the 60s and 70s. But in your research, I guess in your book, too, was there a time when the people of Martha's Vineyard were really thinking about land management in similar ways to what we're doing now? Well, I think the people who have been on the vineyard have always thought about land management, and that goes back thousands of years. The limited space on the vineyard, the tremendous pressure to produce local resources and supplement that with resources from off-island has always made managing the land on Martha's Vineyard a critical issue. What has the response been to your book? Some locals must have read it. Have they given you some feedback? (laughs) The response to the book has been extremely positive. Part of that is just because I'm passionate about the vineyard, love to explore its history and understand its qualities, and largely because the book is really guided by the question of what don't we know, what do we need to know, here's as much as I can explain on any of those subjects. Now, I wasn't actually able to read the book itself, but I dug into some of the topics that you covered. But did you actually talk about climate change in the book? Yeah, climate change figures in strongly, both from a historical perspective and from the present emergencies that are facing us. All right. And I think in the book, you're actually making some, I guess, future, not necessarily predictions, but I guess implications what climate change might mean for Martha's Vineyard. Could you share some of those things? Well, climate change has driven all of the long-term changes on the island, either directly or indirectly. And so looking forward, that will certainly continue. Climate change today, though, is very strongly competed with by human activity, direct human activity. And on the vineyard, it's actually the combination of intense human destruction of the environment, along with the less perceptible but equally important changes that are coming through to climate change and associated sea level rise. You were able to participate in the workshop that the trustees put on, and it focused on what's going to happen, you know, I guess, with modeling, what's going to happen to the island, but then it made some very specific adaptation recommendations, but they were trying to get feedback from the people participating in the workshop. First off, what did you think of the workshop and then some of the adaptation actions that were being discussed? Well, I think the workshop overall was quite interesting. The group that has been providing most of the framework for that, most of the science for that is extremely knowledgeable. The people on the on the call and involved in the discussions come from a, a wide variety of, of very knowledgeable positions. The proposals looking at the island and going forward are a bit mixed, in part because the information that they're that is guiding them is not informed adequately by this historical perspective. And so if that can be included more in guiding decisions today and anticipating the future, it'll improve the quality of our of our expectations and the quality of our management. Now, you must be in an interesting position being able to kind of look historically what's happened to the island. And then as with this workshop, really trying to think about what's happening now and going forward in the future. I've been talking to people focusing on Norton Point and then Swayskwee Beach. And then the history of this area being breached and the ability to drive on portions of the beach. And I'm sure the citizens have all different opinions on that. What's your sense of what's happening there with, I guess, access to that barrier beach? 
So mistakes have been made through time at Norton Point, about Norton Point, and about Waysquee. They go back well more than 100 years because of an inadequate understanding of that system and an inadequate attention to the history of the changes, the dynamics of that system. And I can elaborate. Yeah, please do. Yeah, so that particular part of the coast is one of the absolute most dynamic coastal environments on an island which is eroding at one of the fastest paces along the eastern seaboard. So you're dealing with an extraordinarily tumultuous landscape, which over time has gone through a whole series of transformations that involve essentially the breaking of that barrier beach and then the reforming of it over time. And the mistakes that have been made is not paying attention to the range of dynamics, the inability of humans to anticipate and predict those dynamics, and then the lack of awareness of those in planning and in making decisions. And so it has it has tempted people to try to enhance erosion. It's tempted people to try to prevent erosion. It's tempted people to try to build too close to the shoreline. And it has surprised almost everyone over time. Do you have a sense the the people of Martha's Vineyard understand what's happening and what's going to happen with some of the projected impacts of climate change? Is it something that's talked about frequently when you're walking around the island? It's spoken about in a very general way. I don't believe it's ever truly real to most of the people. The only thing that makes it real is when one of those big catastrophes happen. And we haven't seen many of those for a while. And it's generally on people's mind. It's nothing that people focus on very specifically. And there's very little understanding of how great the changes will be and how much it will influence people's lives. So what do you think about the issue of driving on the beach? The issue of driving on the beach is the elephant in the room. It's the last topic that anyone wants to discuss because it is so controversial. It is so embedded in the culture of the island for some people. It is such a tremendous financial opportunity for the trustees and perhaps other organizations and yet it is unquestionably highly detrimental to the environment. Do you have a favorite spot on the beach? My favorite spot along that entire beach is right beneath the cliffs, which can erode at a phenomenal rate. And so sitting beneath them and understanding those dynamics just gives me a real appreciation for the power and the change of nature. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. Good to meet you. Okay, we are back, and I'm back with Tom O'Shea. We just heard from a lot of the stakeholders from the area talking about Norton Point Beach, and I want to check back in with Tom and get his thoughts, and we're going to do a bit of a wrap-up here. So, Tom, welcome back. Thanks so much, Doug. Glad to be back. All right, so we heard from some of these stakeholders really some interesting things that they're saying and very passionate about the resource here and what's going to happen to it. I guess asking you, what's next for the trustees regarding Norton Point Beach? 
Great question. From what I've heard in terms of people's perspectives and really interesting ones, as you said, Doug, is that it seems that somewhere in the middle is where we need to be in terms of intervention, which is to say that let's trial in some key areas. So, for instance, right where there's access to the uh, Norton Point Beach for oversand vehicles, let's try to do a dune reconstruction. Maybe try a few beach resiliency interventions like beach nourishment, dune reconstruction, or planting uh, beach grass, sand fencing. Try these in different configurations and scales in different places where there's been chronic erosion hotspots or after major storm events. I think there's an interest there to try things out and see how they work. And I think even more so share those learnings with others and even the people who visit the site in the community involve volunteers. That's kind of where I'm seeing where we go after this. And what that is, is essentially a bit of a balance where we're not saying, you know, that we're going to rebuild and fortify the entire Norton Point Beach for the next 50 years. We're, we're not saying that. That's like an extreme sort of approach that we're going to resist and, and fight this process. But, but we're also not saying, look, we're going to let it just go. We're going to accept loss, move on. I think right now people are interested in seeing some intervention. We want to learn from it, too. And I think that it's going to provide a model for others. So that would be where I see us going at this point. I think there are going to be places where we won't act. Like, so say down further on the eastern end of Norton Point Beach, where it has historically breached for, for decades off and on every 15 or 30 years, those areas will likely breach again. And we're not looking to stop the breaches, but the areas to the west where it has remained more stable, those could be good places to intervene and continue to support beach resiliency. So I guess that's where I see see it going um, right now. So here we are at the end of the series. We've created these three podcasts. It's been a wonderful journey for me, and th- th- these are out there now. They're they're part of the permanent record, and hopefully a lot of people are going to learn from them. And I think that was your your intention. Are there any words of advice for listeners out there, even people outside of your region, but if they want to reach out, learn more about what you're doing, any sort of final thoughts in that respect? Sure, happy to engage really anyone who's facing similar challenges or has questions. I, our coastal team, you know, would be glad to talk to people that have questions. So we, we really see this as we can't do it alone, Doug. Uh, none of us can. And responding to coastal change, climate change is something where we all have to be learning together, supporting each other with partnerships and also just thinking about continuing the conversation. And that's what's great about your podcast, Doug, in general, is that you're essentially giving everybody an opening and an entree into the conversation, which is fantastic. Well, thank you. And of course, we can't finish this episode without you telling me your favorite spot on Norton Point Beach. Yeah, it's easily the first part when you come in and then you just look out and you're just like, this is just gorgeous. The sun is facing you. So beaches in Massachusetts, typically many of them are east facing. Right. But this is a south facing beach so that that you've just got the warmth glow and reflection off the water as you're sitting on this beach. And then here's the other cool part is that just behind you is the gorgeous Katama Bay. And you have like these shorebirds, you have some terns that are probably nesting behind you. And then you've got this 
just gorgeous reflection of sun off the water. It's really not like anything else that I have seen generally along our coastline of Massachusetts. So this is a this is a real winner. It's lovely. All right, one of a nice final message. Okay, Tom, it has been a real pleasure working with you and the trustees on this. I've learned so much. And again, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Doug. And likewise, really been a pleasure working with you too. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. What an awesome experience for me to talk with those stakeholders around Norton Point Beach and the trustees and to learn what they are doing with coastal adaptation. Every community is likely going to have their own unique adaptation story. As Tom said, at the trustees, they don't have all the answers, but they want to work with their local community members on doing what's right for them, all the while recognizing the realities of climate change and what that means for coastal systems. Adaptation is sausage-making, and you got to hear firsthand how these communities in Massachusetts are approaching climate adaptation. Thanks again to all those who participated in this episode and in this series, and thanks to the trustees and the Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management for funding this entire podcast series. Special thanks goes to Christine Boyton at the trustees for being my partner in crime setting up all these amazing interviews. Thanks, Christine. I'm still planning to visit someday and get that lobster roll and eating on the beach. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.